0: This is attorney Andy Mark and attorney Mark J Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom and you my friends are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going today, Mark?
1: Awesome man, excited to get to it today. We got a fantastic guest. I've been looking forward to talking to him for quite some time now.
0: Yeah, I met this guy back at uh, the Freedom what is it? Freedom Fest over in South Dakota when we were there and he was saying some pretty provocative and uh, really interesting things about uh, patent law and copyright law and everything. Can't wait to get into it. But before we get to the substance of our guest and the fun conversations, what we like to do is start with a brief overview of what is the Live and Let Live movement. So I don't know anything about this movement. I click on this video. There's Andy and Mark's friendly faces looking at us. Mark, tell everybody who may not know what this movement is all about.
1: All right. Well, uh, Live and Let Live is about really the way to fix the world. It's If you're interested in um, aligning the rules of the world in ways that will maximize human happiness and decrease human suffering, uh, then Live and Let Live is what it's about. If you like the phrase Live and Let Live, you're going to love the Live and Let Live movement. We're pushing aspirational values around the world. This is a global peace movement, so we're pushing things like Open-mindedness and tolerance and voluntary kindness and civility. How about that for today's world? And uh, building high levels of trust with other human beings. And uh, like I said at the beginning, trying to improve human happiness, optimizing human happiness while decreasing human suffering. That's all great stuff. And these are all recommendations. The law should have nothing to do with anything I just said. This is about doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. We want people to act in certain ways, just because it's the right thing to do. That's how you get to peace. But then there's that other set of rules, the ones you have to comply with. And if you don't, somebody's going to come tap you on the shoulder or maybe do something worse. Uh, and there's going to be some kind of a sanction, a consequence. What do we call those varieties of rules, Andy? The law, the that's, legal rules. That's the law. That's the stuff that if you violate, somebody's going to do something. And they're justified in doing something to you of course, after you get a full and fair hearing with due process as we lawyers like to say. Mm -hmm. So anyways, how do we fix the law? What's wrong with the law? How do we fix it? Well, um, there's a principle we like to call the live and let live principle. And if you violate this principle, Uh, you've broken the law. We have a
0: snappy name for it, too. It's the 3LP. The 3LP. It rolls off the tongue much easier. Right. So if you
1: violate the 3LP, yeah, you you should be violating the law. And if you're not violating the 3LP, well, you know, you might be doing something somebody doesn't like. They may find it immoral or unhealthy or unwise or maybe not a good way to live your life or a sin or something like that. But you know what? You got to leave them alone. So how do we decide... Uh, what this 3LP is? What does it mean? Well, it's really simple, right? It all revolves around the live and let live principle. So the idea here is that everybody's equal. Everybody has equal rights. Every human being is uh, no greater, no less than any other human being. So basically, everybody gets to live and let live. So don't be an aggressor. What is an aggressor? This is violating that rule. You're not letting other people live so you got to break down and say what's an aggressor right an aggressor is somebody and this should be obvious an aggressor is somebody who initiates force against another person right if I punch you in the face I'm violating the live in that live rule or initiates force against property. If I swipe your wallet or your car or something like that, this also violates the live and let live rule. If I engage in fraud, which is basically me swindling you out of your property through trickery, there's some other elements there for the lawyers who are listening, Uh, and also coercion. If you engage in coercion, this is violating the live and let live principle. Then there's another category that we like to talk about For the more sophisticated listeners, the ones who listen to this podcast, Um, Look, you don't get to do anything that puts another person at a substantial risk of harm to them or their property, right? Like firing a gun uh, where they're discharging rounds up into the sky recklessly. That violates the rule. Driving drunk, say you're on the wrong side of the road, creating huge risks to other people. Storing dangerous explosive chemicals or something like that next to your property without the proper restrictions uh, that that uh, presents a risk to another person's property all this category of stuff violates the rule so if you don't do that you should be left alone if you don't violate the 3lp you should be left alone.
0: Ah, but Mark, I think I have figured out a way around these pesky legal rules surrounding around the 3LP. What's that? What I'm going to do is I'm going to form a group, and I'm going to call it, maybe I'll call it a corporation or a collective. Maybe I'll even call it a government. So I think I figured out a way to game the system, right, by just calling myself a group.
1: Dude, that was like the sweetest softball pitch ever. You're, I'm going to take this as, hey, Mark, you forgot to say something about the summary. So, yeah, it's true. Uh, this uh, this rule applies to everybody equally. But, you know, and it almost seems like we shouldn't have to say this because it's so obvious, right? But if we form a group, if you, me and you and another person, we all get together and form a group, we don't get to violate the rule either. I know people... Listening or watching this podcast, or thinking, duh, why would you get to violate the rule? I, know I feel the same way. That's why I skip right over it. But things seem to get confusing for some people about groups because in a small group, we can all understand that, yeah, violating the rule is still the wrong thing to do. But even if the group gets bigger, it shouldn't change anything. So imagine a, a big organization. Uh, they don't get to violate the rule. If they violate the rule, then uh, they are acting. They should be acting illegally. The same can be said for corporations. Corporations don't get any free passes in the live and let live movement. Yeah, they can do whatever they want to do as long as they don't violate that rule. And then, of course, the biggest group of all, the government, right? I don't know why people get confused on this point. Yeah,
0: I mean, you say that uh, as everybody's listening to this, this is a duh response. But this is where we lose most people in their reasoning, right? We do,
1: because they're not thinking about it clearly I mean we could get into this maybe we should do a show just on this one point because I think it's maybe a big enough point we you know we've talked about this stuff so much that it's sort of just we get right past it but if people get confused because they think about the government as having some kind of special rights but if you step back and think about it why would we ever want the government to be initiating force or engaging in fraud or uh, coercing other people to do things, or doing things that put us at risks of harm. We shouldn't want any of this. I don't want anybody doing any of this. So nobody gets a free pass. So really, and how, how do you feel about government? If, if I'm asked that question, do whatever they want. I don't care what the government does, as long as it doesn't violate the rules. Same thing for corporations, groups, and people. So it should be pretty simple. And um, you know, if it sounds too simple, Maybe it is. I don't know. But it's easy to understand. And frankly, um, you're going to have three lawyers today talking about these ideas. It works out just fine. There's no area of the law that we would have to divert from the live and let live principle to sort of accommodate. And so today we're going to talk about a really heart issue of the law I and mean, yeah. I haven't done a lot of thinking and so I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, a today.
0: really interesting thing but I'm not going to let you off the hook without talking about the non-legal rules the second category of rules.
1: Yeah this is some of the things that I started with called, called aspirational values because look um, just that people comply with the law this is great if everybody complied with the law we'd have freedom and I'd be very happy about that but we're not going to get to peace right peace requires something different. I mean, if you and I refrain from hitting each other over the head and initiating force and being aggressors toward each other, that's great and I'm happy about that. But we could still hate each other's guts. We could be yelling at each other all day. This isn't peace. And we actually, we're more ambitious than the crowd that's just pushing for freedom. Look, we're all in favor of freedom. Freedom, as I like to say, is a necessary prerequisite to get to peace. But peace requires something in addition. We gotta have some maybe amount of goodwill maybe towards another human being for peace to occur. And we're we're ambitious with this movement. I think we can get there. It's, look, it's easy to message. Anybody can watch this show. Anybody can go to liveandletlive.org. Anybody can think through these issues for themselves. And so we can get this message out to the world. Reasonable people agree with it. Let's make it happen.
0: Nice overview, as always. And, uh, you know, we, we start all the shows out with this overview. And if it's your first time, hopefully that was helpful. But if you're now a long time viewer, maybe this is your 30th time (laughs) hearing this over and over. And you know what? It really is symbolic of what this movement's all about. We always begin with the principle. In every analysis, in every legal issue, in every moral issue, we begin with the principle first. Right now, the R's and the D's, who we're all getting sick of, don't proceed from principles there they show signs of being horrendously unprincipled in their thinking they just kind of choose their list of pet issues well that's not what we're setting out to do we want to start every discussion by saying okay what's the principle lead with the principle up front and then we apply it to whatever topic we're talking about. And that's a great segue into this uh, very interesting guest that we have. It is Stefan Kinsella, and he is a patent attorney in Houston, Texas. He's a libertarian writer, he's a freedom activist. As I mentioned earlier, we met him at Freedom Fest. Seems like a great guy. Stefan, how's it going, man? It's going great. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit more fully to our listeners?
2: Yeah, um, I've been a in the libertarian and Austrian movement for quite some time since the um, since the uh, the '90s, and uh, yeah, I'm an Austrian anarcho-capitalist, and uh, I write a lot on li- libertarian legal theory, uh, law and economics, and intellectual property, and also international law. I've, I've written some stuff on uh, legal topics too, not just uh, policy and libertarian things. Like um, I've written a good deal on, on on intellectual property law, like trademark law and also um, patent law and uh, international law itself. So yeah, I've, uh, I'm a patent attorney here in Houston, Texas, and uh, been heavily involved with the Mises Institute for for a couple of decades.
0: Okay. Now, when you say that uh, you're an Austrian economist, an Austrian anarcho-capitalist, for the uh, maybe folks who are listening uh, who aren't familiar with the term, what what does it mean to be an Austrian economist?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's my flavor of – so in the economics, I mean most of us libertarians are free market economics. We, we, we favor free market economics, but a lot of us are just kind of common sense types or Milton Friedman types, Chicago school. But there's a, a branch of economics called Austri- the Austrian school. Um, the main figures in that would be Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises and Hayek. And so uh, i um really been influenced by the thought of especially Mises and Rothbard. There. And so I'm not an economist, but I'm uh, influenced by Austrian economic thinking. And that's where my uh, sympathies lie. And uh, as for libertarianism, um, I'm more of a principle type libertarian rather than a utilitarian. And I'm more of a radical rather than a minarchist. So I believe in the complete abolition of the state and the complete um, abolition of all uh, aggressive violence in human affairs, which you might call live and let live. <laughs>
0: I wanna I wanna talk about minarchy versus radicalism, right? Because I think the dichotomy here is the minarchists would say, Well let's let's just make the government or situation that we're in incrementally more free and that's that's doing a net good and a net positive. Um, where maybe a radical position might be, no, it's, that's not enough. It's not enough to kind of in, incrementally move it towards freedom. We should make a drastic step. Am I, do, do you think I'm accurately summing up that position?
2: Well, incrementalism is a, is a tactic or a policy, and uh, incrementalism is, is sort of orthogonal to whether you're a minarchist or an anarchist. Um, uh, most anarchists I'm aware of are in favor of incremental improvements. So any change in the status quo that is in the direction of anarchy, they're in favor of. Um so the minarchist so they're attacking a straw man when they when they when they say we're 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 um uh, you know we want too much um the it's a difference in perspectives uh the minarchist claims to be against aggression and yet they believe the state has the right to commit aggression Mm. so they're just complete they have their head in the sand they're either not sincere or they're or they're not thinking or they're not consistent um or they're hypocrites or they're really just statists. i call them mini statists sometimes and it pisses them off (laughs) But okay, you're a minimal minimal status. But you know they accuse anarchists of being um, utopians because we believe in something that's impossible. But what's really impossible is to have a minimal state. We, there's never been one. There never will be one. Once you give a, a monopoly the power of over law and justice, it will of course use its monopoly position to expand its power. That's what always has happened and always will happen.
1: You know, Stefan. I like you. I've been around this movement for a long time, probably thirty-ish years somewhere in there. And uh, man, there's been so many debates and disputes and uh, between the group that identifies as minarchists and the group that identifies as anarchists. Uh, I don't like either of those terms. I, I I think that the the if there is a difference between these two groups, I think it's a difference in the definition of government. And instead of focusing on that, I like to think about um, to the principle. That's what I care about is the principle. So I would say uh, maybe the person who's identifying as the uh, well, actually let me let me get rid of those labels and just say it like this. One group thinks the group that I'm in uh, thinks that nobody should ever violate the principle at any time for any reason. I'm sort of an absolutist there. I recognize that you know there might be some times on the edges where the right thing to do. Might be to violate the principle, Correct. and and I think there yeah. are, there is are some you know this is how uh, and uh, you know sort of the uh, u- utilitarian or consequentialist view that is uh, put forth by um, not Milton Friedman who you mentioned earlier, but his son David Friedman puts this out in his book. Uh, the machinery of freedom. And and I'm sort of sympathetic to some of these ideas, right? Because if you just use the principle, then you probably are going to encounter sometimes when, okay, maybe the right thing to do at the edges uh, is to violate the principle. For for the most part, I think that's always a legal wrong. How we deal with that is a different question.
2: Yeah. And I think that's actually right. But I think you're stating as if it's obvious, but I think a lot of people get that confused. Um, and I'm, um, I think if David Friedman says that, he's attacking a straw man because most libertarians would say that um, libertarianism is not a moral theory; it's only a political theory. Um, and by what, but what they mean by that is they believe that individual rights—the ones that we identify, the things that are violated by aggression—are only a subset of, of morals. So that. Um, So that some things you have a right to do but that are immoral, and that is correct, but it is not correct in my view to say that everything that is a rights violation or illegal is immoral like you just implied. Um, So I think you have to look at the live and let live principle or the non-aggression principle not as a moral rule directed towards individual behavior. It's not a guide to conduct it is a guide towards deciding which laws are justified yes. which laws that are you can enforce and i do think there's substantial overlap so i think you could you could say that most most actions that violate a law a just law or immoral but not necessarily right and that's the province of ethical theory and moral theory not not political theory really um so i think we have to keep that in mind so just like not everything that is um uh that legal is moral not everything that's illegal is immoral yeah, Excellent yeah I, point. I think
1: I, t- I tend to agree with that but back to this discussion of anarchy minarchy you know i think that those people who take the position that it always ought to be against the law at least to violate the principle that's one camp the other camp says no it's okay to the law should allow for violations of the principle On various occasions some groups say we should violate it all the time for all kinds of different reasons like for example taxing the rich and redistributing that money to other people for whatever reasons or or taxing anybody for that matter and redistributing money for other goals so that that's one position so if the minarchist is saying I think the law ought to allow a violation of the principle sometimes okay this person really isn't sort of philosophically any different than the person Correct. who says it should be violated all the time
2: I, I, i've made i've made exactly that argument before so th- what the minarchist a lot of minarchist uh, they dissemble and they try to evade they they try not to admit that they're in favor of their they condone aggression in some cases so they'll play this game they'll say something like oh well you're in favor of the use of force to to uh, to defend a, a property right, so you're in favor of aggression too. So we're all in favor of aggression. So you can't criticize me for being so. Of course, that's that's uh, that's being d- uh, disingenuous. Uh, that's equivocation. We're not in favor of aggression to to enforce the law. We're in favor of force to use enforce the law, and that's not aggression. Um, but so what I point out is that listen, you think that usually aggression is. Wrong and should be illegal, but you're willing to make exceptions. Now you have reasons for it, okay? And the reasons usually are, well, it's necessary to have a government; otherwise, you're going to have chaos, right? Okay, fine. That's your reason. In other words, you have an excuse for condoning the use of violence that this state has to commit to maintain its monopoly and right to to be a state. So you have a reason. But the criminal has a reason. The socialist has a reason. The theocrat has a reason. They all have a reason for the use of force that they commit or that they condone. So from my point of view as someone who is an innocent victim of that force or who sympathizes with people who would be… Um, I don't see a difference uh, to me they're just details and all I hear is the jabbering in the wind of some someone who's dangerous to me they they're basically like a criminal or a thief or a despot or an animal or you know a tiger or a lion or or a disease or pestilence they're just something we have to take into account and deal with in a technical way because they, they can sometimes be beyond the reach of reach of reason.
0: Well, or they're just suffering from the mental disconnect of the problem that Mark identified at the beginning of the podcast as being so obvious that it's a duh point, right? They don't understand that by sanctioning a group of people to enact the aggression on their behalf that they are somehow equally um, morally culpable for that aggression, right? If you're if you're if you're paying a thief to rob somebody else, you're just as responsible. They they absolve. They wash. They think they're washing their hands at that point of of the moral wrong, but they're not. And that that's the disconnect for a lot. You of see,
1: people. I think of the group that identifies as minarchist. I think there really are two radically different crowds in that group. I think there's one crowd in that group that says, yeah, it is okay to initiate force to accomplish certain things. That group isn't really connected to us at all, in my opinion. Uh, they are, I agree. They are qualitatively different. Then there's a, then there's another group that identifies as minarchists. This group would say, yes, I do think it's always wrong to a legal. It should be a legal wrong to violate the principle. However, we need government to help enforce. Uh, property rights and to define the contours of the principle and things of this nature. And so what I think is really happening here is there are different definitions of government. Some people take the position that government by its very nature always in all cases violates the rule. OK, well, if you use that definition, I'm
0: getting that vibe from Stefan.
1: Yeah, maybe. But if but if you use that definition, then, OK, you have to you have to say what Stefan is saying, which is I'm against government because government always violates the rule and I'm against the rule being violated. But there are
2: well, I, I, th- I think you and I had to talk about this one time earlier, Mark. Um, I, I am against the state because the state has a clear meaning. The state is, a, is an agency that has uh, a monopoly over the use of violence in a given region okay and that is necessarily aggressive and criminal government is an ambiguous term so if uh, we we anarchists don't believe that you would have chaos without the state we think that you would have more order and you'd have law and order and and justice and if you if you want to use the word government to describe the, the entities that would arise to do that, then we're not against government at all. It's just that the the, the statist believes that you can only have government when the state is behind it, just like they believe uh, your modern Democrat in America only believes you can have health care and roads if the if the government uh, provides it. And, and so if you're against the government providing the roads, they think you're against roads. Right. But we're not against roads. Right, and right. If you th- you know we're not against education either, even though we're against the state um, providing education. So I'm not against I'm against the state providing government services but I'm not against governmental services.
0: We're getting into a semi-sophisticated libertarian conversation here where we're now differentiating between the government and the state. um, Correct. Just just for listeners who are listening right now who maybe don't identify as libertarianism, because that's a big part of this project is outreach and reaching people and speaking to them in terms they can understand. Stefan, can you kind of uh, explain the dichotomy between what you would call the state versus the government?
2: Right. Well, the state is is an entity. Right. It has has legal personality. It's a nation state. We call it now. <clears throat> and it is is it is an entity or an agency that that maintains the the right to outlaw competitors and the right to tax. In in practice, either 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 power implies the other because if you can tax your population, you can you could just subsidize your services and you could outcompete any competitors. Just like the public schools have ninety percent of the students, right? Because most people can't afford to pay twice or whatever. Um, or if you have the power to outlaw competitors. Um, Then you can just charge a monopoly price for your services because no one can offer those services, which is like a tax. But in practice, that's what a state is. It has the power to tax and the power to outlaw competitors in a jurisdiction and thus to monopolize services. And that that makes it be inefficient in its services and has bad customer service, and it makes it uh, expand its power over time. The word government just means the governing institutions like governance. Um, So you would think of law, courts… Um, any defensive forces, people need policing forces, military forces, defense forces that could be part of the governance agency. So the question is whether that has to has to be provided by a monopoly or not um like roads obviously don't um you know so going to space doesn't it's being done privately now. Uh, but I think I agree with what Mark said earlier. It, you know, we don't really have to argue over whether someone is a libertarian or not. The question is, do you know what's? How do the principles apply to given issues? Or is it right or wrong to use force in this case? And to, and to answer that, sometimes you have to you have to analyze whether there is force being used and and who's the, who's the one initiating it because it's not always clear
1: from a first glance. Yeah, there are many hard questions here, and I think one of the many things that live and let live is bringing to the table and i hate saying this because i love this discussion that we're having but we need to jettison this entire discussion because it's this very discussion that i believe is hampering uh, what we lovingly call the freedom movement. Because, you know, splicing through little definitions about what exactly is government, what exactly is the state, I think isn't getting us anywhere. I like to focus on the one thing that matters, which is the principle. If the principle is being violated, we think that act should be illegal. If the principle's not being violated, we think minimally what the conduct should be legal, whatever else you say about it is your business because that's really what we care about, right? What the law is, is to say, look, if it's not the law, you you may be very upset about it. You might pick it, you could be upset, you could do whatever you want, but you're left alone. And that's the part that we really care about. So, you know, jettisoning this, there are several different discussions here. Like for example, why should one accept the principle right i mean this opens up a gigantic right no and
2: that's interesting Yeah, that's that's an interesting question it's a meta question it's also interesting question i
1: I love the question i find it a very interesting question but but to get the world to change we don't need to resolve whether this is a natural rights argument a contract i completely
2: agree i completely agree and we don't need to we don't need i mean most people i believe most people happen to share Certain core values. So, we, wh- what we need to do is appeal to those values and just explain. Listen, we all like ninety nine percent of us believe in peace, prosperity, harmony, um, conflict avoidance. You know, uh, we believe in our own lives and our family's lives, but we, we want everyone else to have. good Ninety nine percent
0: of us uh, abide by the live and let prin- live principle already Correct. in our day to day lives on interacting on a single
2: person level. Right. It's just that it's just most people. Are Basically are pretty illiterate on economics, so that means they don't understand that some of the laws and policies they've been led to favor are incompatible with their basic principles. So our job is really to – if you want to be an activist or, or a tactician, right? I kind of agree with you. The, these little angels dancing on the head of the pen debates are not the way to do it. I wouldn't I wouldn't denigrate it and say it has no place. It does have a place in in, in political philosophy and in legal theory, and that's what some of us do. And you know, in the background, so you can have some people working to advance the theory and strengthen the edifice, and you know, uh, while others are are out trying to spread the core message and achieve liberty in other ways. So I think it's a multifaceted a movement. Um, With a
1: huge division and specialization of labor… Yeah, and I think we can jettison a lot of the the stuff that we like to talk about. I, I, th-
0: I think we're proudly in the public outreach uh, area of the movement with right. this particular movement. Yeah, right? we,
1: like economics. Uh, you know, if, if we got to convince people to read Mises' Human Action and then have a discussion about it, we're never going to get anywhere. And so I, I think we don't need I to— I totally to, agree, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't totally think agree. we need to talk about economics at all. I don't think we need to be pro-capitalism. I don't think we need to be anti-socialism. I think we need to be— pro the law should be uh, compatible and in harmony with the principle and that's it we don't even need to define what government is i think the only thing we need to say here is look whatever you want to term government however you want to define it whatever you want to do don't care as long but, as it but, doesn't but
2: this shouldn't be a law but this should not be a law or this should be a law that's yes. what it comes down to look take this arcane area that i'm one of my specialties intellectual property which most people roll their eyes at they don't understand and it is a heavily theoretical area. Um, you know, we live in a world where you hear almost every day on television that China is stealing our intellectual property, and policies are made like on the basis of that. And you hear uh, debates about whether the pharmaceutical companies should have their patents uh, made public to help the fight in COVID. And then you hear Joe uh, um, Bernie Sanders saying things like, uh, you know, we need to have socialized, single-payer healthcare so that they can bargain with the with the pharmaceutical companies to force them to lower their high prices even though the prices are high because of the patent system that the federal government has put in place so even bernie sanders is not not going with the obvious solution which is why don't we get rid of the patent system so that the pharmaceutical companies couldn't charge the high prices in the first place that that he wants to socialize the healthcare system just so we can lower those prices i mean there's so many things that if you if you bring a little wisdom to it they do bear on people's lives. I mean, I do think that like patent and copyright law tr- impact uh, impact people's lives on a daily basis, and they're not, they're not quite aware of it. You have people, they can't even have their own iPhones fixed because of copyright law. So then the patch is you have some congressmen saying, Let's have a right to repair law. Well, that's just like taking back a little bit of the copyright monopoly that you gave these companies that allows them to violate the property rights of the of the owners of, of consumer <laughs> products why don't you stop doing that in the first place
1: well since we're going to crack the can of worms on intellectual property here, one thing we don't talk about very often, and I, I think we don't talk about it because most people generally agree, um, you know, this idea, and I guess we'll stick with libertarianism for a moment. Libertarianism talks about the very same principle that we talk about with the live and let live principle. It's called the non-aggression principle. And of course, this it wasn't originated with libertarianism either, right? John Stuart Mill talked about the harm principle, which is roughly the same. And there are the bible talks about the golden rule there are many different ways to express a same or very similar principle but one thing that's critically important before you can even discuss the principle is a theory of property right we have to first figure out who owns what and what can be owned and we don't spend a lot of time on this because the libertarian and the live and let liver both say look you own your body we start the analysis there right We don't. I don't say why you own your body or how you own your body or uh, what the objections are to that point but you own your body, your property, your money and your time but there's got to be a theory right because somebody could simply say well look no, I don't think you own your body, God owns your body or something like that or we all own the earth or some other thing like that
0: So, or the government owns your property which is right, the predominant right, theory in- Right,
1: and of course not everything can be owned right you can lay a claim on the air you can lay a claim on Saturn you can lay lay a claim on the universe And you can lay a claim on anything you want but ownership of property requires something different than that and so I think the underlying issue with the intellectual property question is 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 intellectual property like like this mug, is it something you actually can own or not? Because I think that this goes down one of two roads. If it is something you can own and it's really property, well then we go down the road and we treat it like every other piece of property. If it's not something that you can own, it's like say the air in the atmosphere or something, then you go down a different road and nobody owns it. So. Don't we first have to make a determination about whether intellectual property is something you can own or something you can't own? And then how do we make that determination? And can reasonable minds disagree here?
2: No, reasonable minds cannot disagree. And this is my opinion after studying this for so long. There are no good arguments for intellectual property. They are all based upon fallacies and confusions. Um um, let me back up. In a way, I think you're correct about property. Property is not only essential for the IP issue; it's it's essential for everything. everything. Because, and this is why I mentioned I'm an Austrian, because the, the focus on the focus on scarce resources is is central to to Austrian economics, um, and scarce resources being the the means, the tools, the things in the world that we employ to get things done, to act in the world. Um, there's a focus on that. So our bodies, and then the other things in the world that we use, these are all scarce resources, right? These are means of action, um, and so um, as as Murray Rothbard, who's a libertarian and an Austrian, explained, all all human rights are property rights, right? Because every right is every right correlates with the law. Every every law is is enforcing some right, and every right has to be a property right. Right. And if you think about it, if a law being enforceable. All laws are enforceable, and that means force can be employed to defend that right or to, to make that right good if someone violates it. But force is a physical thing, and you can only apply force to other physical things. Right? Like it can't be applied to ghosts or to shadows you right. know, or to memories. It, only, it can only be applied to things in the real world, these scarce means of action that I'm talking about. So all laws have to apply to physical scarce things, and the whole reason for all these laws is to prevent conflict over the use of these things so that we can live in cooperation and harmony and peace with each other in other words because we're physical beings in the world it's possible for there to be disagreement over who can use a given thing a thing that can only be used by one person at a time right. like my body right right uh, if someone wants to have sex with my body either i get to make that decision and consent <laughs> to it or they do right so it's either rape or it's you know what i mean right. so there can be – so the question of law is to to determine who the owner is, and right. most legal systems have at their root that for your body, the person himself is the owner. right? That's the presumptive owner. You can lose that right if you commit a crime, but you're the presumptive owner is the person. And then for other things in the world, um, the basic rule is finders keepers. The first one who had it is the owner unless he gives it to someone by contract, and then they're the owner. So it's the, that's – if you want to talk about simple rules… That's the rules. Whenever there's a scarce resource that we have a dispute over, thing you might go to court over. Two people both claim to have it; they, they both want it. That cow, that piece of land, that watch, that car, you know, um, that body. Then the court will say, "Well, who owns it?" And they just have a few simple rules to consult to answer the question: Whose body is it? Who, which person is it? That's the answer to that question. Like there's no slavery. <laughs> We're against slavery. sorry to be so radical, right? And for other things, the question is, who found it first, and then who got it by contract? That can answer all these questions. That's it. So the whole body of law is the working out of the detailed and the practical applications of those principles, according to different local customs and traditions and 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 and, and styles. Um, and so. If you go back to what you said in the beginning when you guys were reciting some of the live and let live stuff, they're very simple principles similar to what Richard Epstein lays out in his simple rules for a complex world. They are simple, but by those principles, you could say, okay, contract breach or at least fraud could be a type of crime. Certainly rape or robbery is a type of crime. Right? Theft is a type of crime. Conversion. uh, Murder is a crime. Arson is a crime. Because all all those things are the uses of someone's resource that they own according to the law without their permission, right? But let me ask you, so patent and copyright law, intellectual property law, basically is the government telling one person that they can stop someone else from using their resources as they see fit, right? So if I have a copyright, I can prevent you from making a copy of a book. I can prevent you from printing on your own printing press a book. I can use state force to stop you from doing that. Now, presumptively, that looks like a violation of your rights because I'm using force against you to keep you from using your property like you see fit, even though you haven't committed any tort or crime against me according to your simple principles. So the law is presumptively invalid. invalid. The same thing is true for patent law. If I have a patent on a mousetrap… I can use that patent, go to the government courts. They can issue an injunction to keep you from using your wood and your steel in your own house or in your own factory to make a mousetrap. Why do I have the right to keep you from using your property as you see fit? So there is no simple argument for IP. It's always complex, which is why they come in the form of these complicated statutes. They never arose on the common law. They couldn't arise on the common law. They didn't arise on the common law. Um, Copyright arose.  … From the practice of the church, and the, and the government uh, controlling which books could be printed, and then um, um, and then when the, the printing press came around and ruined that, then they passed the Statute of Anne in 1709, which is the basis of modern copyright, and patents arose from the practice of, of of kings granting monopoly privileges to their court cronies, giving them the only right to practice a certain trade in a given area, and when that got out of hand, the Parliament choke choked back on that a little bit in 1623 with the statute of monopolies patents come from the statute of monopolies it is the government grant of a monopoly and then yet in the united states you have you have the, the the um the FTC the Federal trade commission pursuing some companies for violation of the antitrust laws for abusing their patents i mean the government is giving you a monopoly and then they're attacking you for using it and having a monopoly i mean the whole thing is totally schizophrenic it's just like uh, it's just like the FDA system. People say, well, you need to have a patent to to stop people from competing with if, if you spend lots of money to develop a drug, because otherwise you can't recoup your costs. As if the purpose of law is to allow people to recoup costs. What the hell is that? No, you're not guaranteed to, to recoup your costs in the business world. You know, you take your chances. But but then they say, Well, the costs are so high to develop a drug because of the FDA. Yeah. Come on, go through the process. Think, what's the problem here? The government raises costs on businesses with the FDA and the minimum wage and the tariff system and regulations and taxes. And then the government says, "But we're going to we're going to make it up to you by giving you a monopoly for 17 years so you can charge a monopoly price for your product and stop your competitors from competing with you. That'll make it up to you." Does this sound like the free market? You just raised a ton of really
0: interesting issues. But just before we dive into any of them, let me get this straight. You chose to specialize in a field of law that you believe should be entirely abolished. H- how does that happen?
1: <laughs> we did kind of the same thing with the
2: drug war, right? <laughs> I guess so. it, it, it is the same thing as the drug war. I yeah. mean, You guys make money from being paid by clients to defend them from unjust laws. Less and less, you- by the
0: way. Because Arizona just passed 207, marijuana is no longer cases that we take at this office anymore. But his
2: point is is well taken, yeah. But you guys want that law to be abolished. So if you had your way, your 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 that that specialty area would be abolished. I and, would
0: simply say I would simply say in response that drug war cases only to maybe consist of 10, 15, maybe 20% max of what our current caseload is and it sounds like the entire field that you
2: specialize in you'd like to do away with. Correct. So so there is what uh, you could also say like an oncologist, a, a cancer doctor, you know he 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 hopes to uh, to defeat cancer but he's being paid a handsome salary in the meantime. The, the one difference is this as a as a criminal defense attorney it's hard to imagine anything unethical you could do i mean there's unethical by legal standards but i mean you're fighting you're fighting a criminal state so you're doing a good job given the fact that it exists which it shouldn't a patent attorney can do harm because i can help someone obtain patents and then enforce them and sue people but in my career i've chosen not to do that i've never represented someone um, asserting a patent in an offensive way. I've helped companies defend, and I've helped them obtain patents. But helping obtain patents is uh, is analogous to selling guns to people. You sell a gun to someone, uh, you don't know if they're going to use it for good or for evil, right? You can use it. There's defensive. There's 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 legitimate reasons to have a gun, and there are illegitimate reasons to or ways to use a gun. So. My, I've tried to keep my hands as clean as possible ethically, but it's, a, it's just a coincidence to be honest. I was uh, always troubled by the IP issue as a libertarian in law school because it never made sense, um, the arguments for IP by Ayn Rand and others. So I just always kind of thought about it, but when I took the patent bar, I started – decided to become a patent attorney in 1993, 94 I started studying the issue as a libertarian at the same time just because I really wanted to figure it out. And I thought, I thought I'm the patent – I'm the libertarian patent lawyer. I'll be the one who can finally come up with a good argument for IP. But I finally gave up and realized the reason I had been failing for two years was because it's unjustifiable. I was trying to justify murder. There's a famous quote by my favorite Roman jurist, Papinian. Um, he says it's – he. there were two co-emperors, Geta and – I forgot the other one – and one of them had his his co-emperor… Murdered, and he told the court jurist who was Papinian—he's sort of like the highest legal thinker in the land—he said, "I want you to compose a defense for what I did," and he refused to do it, and he—he was—he 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 was was axed to death as his punishment. But he said, "It's his—it's his refusal to do it." He says, "It's easier to commit murder than to justify it." Yeah, Mm -hmm. I love that expression because it's true. And so I was the same thing for me with IP, not to compare myself to Papinian. However, you know, I realized that I, I could – I failed in justifying it because I was trying to justify the unjustifiable.
1: So I'm curious about a few things. You made the analogy with uh, selling the gun, um, and certainly a gun can be used for good purposes or bad purposes can the same be said about a patent in your view yes
2: they can be used defensively so if you hold a patent and you just hold it as a defensive it's like the porcupine right think of the porcupine with its quills he doesn't have to use them but if someone attacks the porcupine he can he can use them back so if 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 I'm a, if I'm a small company and I have some patents and I'm sued for patent infringement by by a competitor, I can counter sue him with my patents and I think that's completely justified
1: so not to stop other people, From infringing on your patent, but that would be that
2: would be aggression. But I think to use it defensively against someone who's attacking me is totally justified. And also it wards off lawsuits. So if I have a large patent um, chest, it might dissuade people from suing me in the first place because they don't want to they don't want to get they don't want to go after someone who can fight back.
1: Everything you're saying certainly makes sense. Um, but it all proceeds from this first premise, I think, which is kind of where you started, right? Hey, property Correct. property is this physical thing, right? It's something we can own. And in fact, I've often said, if, if, if you let me control property rights and you control all other rights, you'll very quickly find out that I control everything, right? I mean, this is something I think you well understand. I expect you would agree with that statement, right?
2: Yeah, but not to be pedantic, but just like the government state thing, property is not a physical thing property rights or the or the ownership rights to control physical things. But right. people use the word property to refer to the object of a property right, but it can lead to confusion at All some right. point. But fair enough. technically speaking, property is the relationship between the owner and the thing.
1: fair enough. But so you you start the analysis with this sort of premise that whatever intellectual property is, it's certainly not physical property. And maybe for that reason alone or maybe for that reason plus other reasons, it can't be owned. And then everything you say proceeds from that. Is that right?
2: I wouldn't say it can't be owned. Um, I would say that ownership rights only apply to the types of things over which there can be disputes, which are scarce means or physical resources. Um, You you cannot own information because – Information is a different it plays a different role. This gets into into a little bit of the, the deep uh, Austrian economics, but uh, it's Mises' idea of praxeology, which is the science of human action, where he breaks human action down into its components. And the two components that' are relevant here is that every time a human being acts, he has some goal in mind, something he wants to achieve in the future. And he looks around and tries to understand the world and see what how he can achieve it, how he can I- intervene in the course of affairs and achieve it. You, he uses his body and he uses his any tools or means at his disposal to achieve
1: what he wants, right? well, i i I, I was trying to get to the point here that, sort of an idea, let's say an idea, a, a construction of here's how, oh, you, yeah. here's how you put these things together. It yeah. sounds to me like you're saying an idea alone. That's not something oh, yeah. that can be owned. Correct.
2: And so the reason that, so here's the, here's the thing. When, when you act as a human being, you have to have scarce resources to employ these, pro- these physical things that we call property sometimes, right? But you also have to have knowledge because if you didn't have any knowledge, you'd just be a vegetable doing nothing. You have to know what to do. You have to understand something about the world. Like, if you want to start a fire, you have to know how to start a fire. You you have to even know that fires are are good to start. Like, oh, I can start a fire to cook a food, to cook to cook a fish, you know, something like that. So you so every action we take has two ingredients. One is knowledge, and one is the availability of these scarce resources, these tools in the world. And the good thing about human society and civilization is every day, every generation. Um, the amount of knowledge and information we have grows, right? Because it's it's a, it's a linear chronological thing. So we have way more technical knowledge. I mean, the reason that we're we're advanced right now is not because we're physically smarter than our ancestors from Rome 2,000 years ago. They were the same as us. They just didn't have the knowledge that we have now. So that's what makes us rich. But knowledge is a type of thing that everyone can use at one time. There's no conflict over it. That's why it's not an ownable thing. So I would agree with you, it's not an ownable thing. Ownable things are only the things that we can fight over. So for example, if I take your mixing bowl, you can't you can't bake with it. You can't you can't make your cake with it cuz I have taken it from you, right? If I take your bicycle, you can't ride to school because you don't have your bicycle anymore. But if I see you riding a bike and I make my own bicycle, now we each have a bicycle. By, by by learning from you and taking knowledge from you, I'm not taking anything
1: from you that you control. But so what, I mean, but- there, there are other hard questions about what can be owned, like for example, water rights. And as you know, there are different kind of philosophies on how water rights work. I can remember uh, there, there are two major schools, this sort of, I think, prior appropriation, and then there's this riparian idea, and, and like a stream. If I own a stream, do I own the actual water as it's passing Correct. through? And there's all kinds of rules about this. And, and
2: there's also um, there's also interesting debates on underground minerals, like in different states. And um, how whether, far above
1: your property you own into the air? Well, there,
2: there's Ag Cola, but there's, there's something called the rule of capture in some states, which means that, um, you know, like you have two adjoining landowners and they both have a common pool of oil under them. Mm. Um can one just stick a straw down there it's like it's a milkshake example you have two people and they have both have the straw yeah. and milkshake if you have an unlimited right to just suck and suck and suck then you're going to suck really fast and you're gonna might suck too fast so anyway and there's property arguments
0: that, over types of uses of property easements and covenants correct. and how how can i walk across your land while not owning the land that i'm walking
2: on is a problem and i would right. agree there are legitimate arguments of those and there can be difficult cases in gray areas Uh, But not for IP
1: (laughs) well and just to keep to keep rolling on some of these hard questions You know, there's I could lay a claim on some little Coordinate in the ocean and say hey, you know, this is my spot I own all the way down to the center of the earth and all the way up till wherever it ends if it does And then there are intangible things right because there are many things that are not Physical that we still own what if I own a lien on a piece of property or I own a stock in a corporation or something.
2: Now that now this gets this is where it gets interesting to me, but it you have to really get technical, very technical. Um, and I guess I so guess I,
1: before you go down that, you, road. I don't
2: think you can own intangible things. I think that's actually incorrect. So a lien and a stock are just complicated concepts we use to describe ultimately who owns physical resources.
1: Okay, so you say that's still a fit, even though it's really just an interest in a business, right? A the word interest
2: is just a legal term we use to describe ultimately how the rules play out which determines who owns a given physical resource it always comes down to a physical resource
1: yeah and i guess what i'm getting at here and maybe you'll you'll set me straight on this is you know the this concept of property rights which we have to have first before we can even talk about how the principle applies. price most things are easy right and this this cup this is pretty easy some things are hard on the edges in yes and same can be said on how the principle applies in many different areas right age of consent what's a substantial risk lots of things here and what i like to say in those areas in terms of now we're into how the principle applies is look Reasonable minds can disagree here, and yes. that's why I like to say let the local community work that out. And there are some obvious reasons why we think that makes sense. Why isn't the same true for the hard questions in property rights where we do right now have different philosophies and say water rights and things like this?
2: Well, I think they are, but you know, it's not hard at the, at the abstract level. So at the abstract level, we know that every person is the presumed self-owner of his body, and we know that in general – the guy who f- starts using a resource first has a better claim than someone who comes later, right? Like that's homesteading. How you apply that to every specific issue can get harder and harder. We know the, we know the abstract rules, but when you apply them, you have to develop concrete principles. But so I would agree with you that you have to have some leeway for, for local custom and things like that. But not only that, I think um, what you said earlier in the very beginning, you said the word goodwill. We have to assume goodwill. Um you know, in the law, at least in the civil law, I'm from Louisiana, which is a civil law state, and there's something, and I think there must be an al- analog to um, to common law. There's there's a, there's a presumption of good faith, like when you interpret a contract, and I think that's perfectly libertarian. Mm-hmm. And the, part of the reason is no contract can be complete. There's always going to be a gap. That's why you right. have to have suppletive uh, law or gap filler law, um, and one of those gaps would be if we're not sure what you guys meant or and you or you actually left it blank we have to guess what you would have bargained for to figure out so ambiguities we have to assume sometimes. that you're both in good faith now let's suppose one party says no i don't want you to presume good faith it's like so are you telling me that when you started negotiating if the other guy had said are you okay with putting a good faith clause in here you would have said no i'm in bad faith <laughs> right so there are some things so not only that i believe that um You have to sort of as a background meta principle, you have to have what I like to call maybe like a propensity to compromise or to negotiate because that means if two people have a dispute and they both think they're right. But if you want to live in a civilized society, you should not take the law in your own hands. You should take it to a neutral third party, and you should be willing to accept his decision even if you don't agree with it, right? So that's how compromise happens. If you have two landowners and they have a, a fence between them and one guy thinks it's one foot over too far, nobody knows exactly where it was. At certain point in time, you can never get down to the to the millimeter level anyway. That's just how, not how real property law works. So you have to have a willingness to have a, a tug you know, and a, and a give and take and a compromise and be reasonable. Um, that has to be there to make it a little bit squishy for things to work I think in, in the law. But it doesn't mean doesn't mean there's no solid principles in between.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, because I don't think we've said this yet, there might be people watching this podcast thinking, this is crazy, no intellectual property. I mean, uh, somebody could just spend all their time writing a, a beautiful song or something and then they send it out to the universe and now they they can't make any money or they write a book and they can't make any money. I think there are ways to work around this, right? Through contra- there are. Through contract. Line. Why don't you talk about that to maybe well, fill in a little bit how this could actually work?
2: Yeah. So, so first of all, we're very used to the way things are because it's been that way for over 200 years. I, you know, I'm sure if you go to France and you say we should have a free market in medicine, they're going to say, "What do you, What do you mean? I, I have to pay for my own." You know, how, how would that work? Or if you say, "Let's privatize the roads," people wonder, "Well, what's that going to look like?" And we might not always know the answer to what it's going to look like. Some things have been so distorted and corrupted and monopolized by the state over the centuries that we haven't had a chance to see what a gloriously free society would actually look like um but we're still in favor of it because we we in principle favor freedom and so our answer really is it looks like what our freedom looks like yeah we don't know what it looks like yet because you've prevented us from seeing it you know if i'm trapped in if i've been trapped in siberia in a gulag for 10 years i might for i might have forgotten what the sky looks like outside but i still want to go see it you know what i mean right um so so for example um um one thing people don't think about it because they, they've they've been taught to believe in this idea of IP, and that's you know if if you copy what someone does, you're you're ripping them off or you're pirating them, right? Which are all terms of, of theft or you're stealing, which which you're not. You're you're copying. You're not taking anything. You're just copying or emulating what they do. But um, so if you think about it, you can make the same argument for anything on the free market. So let, let's say let's say. Uh, People like pizza, but there's only pizza restaurants where you have to go. And someone someone thinks, "Oh, I know. I'm going to start a delivery pizza restaurant. No one's ever done this before, right?" So the first guy that I don't know, Pizza Hut or whoever did it, Domino's. Let's say Domino's was the first. Now Domino's is making a lot of money because they have no competition. They can charge pretty fat prices, you know, so they can rest easy for a while and make lots of money. But of course, the success of what they're doing, the profits they're making, is a signal, a price signal they're sending through the through the through the market. And it's alerting everyone in the market, hey, this guy's doing something to please customers. Other people should do it, right? And so of course you're gonna have Papa John's and other other companies spring up to compete with them. And you can say, well, that's unfair. They're 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 making a profit off of the other guy's idea, right? Or it's 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 not easy for the first guy to make as much money as he wanted to, because now he's gonna his profit margins are gonna start being eroded. But we take that as natural. That's that's competition. That's the, that's the way the free market works. So when you when you make and most people would admit that okay, well it's okay for people to compete with each other in a hamburger restaurant or in or in a, a drugstore or whatever, but not for a pharmaceutical or not for a new mousetrap. And the question is why? Because on, on, structurally they're the same thing. I just I come up with something that I start selling and it pleases customers. I make profit and other people notice that and they emulate what I'm doing and they start selling a similar product. And soon I lose my ability to, you know, it's the exact same thing. The only difference is for certain types of products where a large percentage of the value is basically a simple design that can be easily copied, it's very easy for someone to compete with you quick and more quickly. Like a book is a good example of that. Like if I publish a book, now this wasn't true at first, by the way, you know, it was hard to copy books, but now it's easy. So, so if I, the day I print a book, um, all someone has to do is scan it one time.  … and then they can start running off copies. right? So it's almost no effort on their part. But it's still in principle the same thing. It just means it's very easy for them to to compete with me. So that means you have to have some line. Like if it's hard to compete with you, it's legal. If it's easy to compete with you, it's illegal. What kind of principle is that, and where do you draw the line? And who knows how to draw the line?
0: I don't know. I worry more about artwork and things with a lot of specificity to them or something like that. I'm a musician, and as you're talking, I'm wondering, from your perspective, should I own my song? If I write a song, do I own the song? Absolutely not. So I think about myself. I'm in a local band, and we're by no means a a big record-sensational international smash. And I think about us playing at a local venue to a handful of people— and uh, somebody from a big record company comes through and likes one of the songs that I um, worked on for a long time, and they simply take it and they hand it to a multi-million-dollar act to the, record there,
2: there wouldn't there, those companies probably wouldn't exist in my world. They exist because of copyright. All these huge. Uh, All the gatekeeping companies existed because of copyright. Fair enough. Hollywood, the the publishing industry. Let's
0: assume it's big enough in your world, not that it's some giant multinational corporation, though I don't see why that couldn't exist in theory if they were extremely successful perhaps in ripping off local artists. But let's say that as big as they get in your world, takes my song and then um, publishes it. They're not taking it. They're copying it. Right. So I don't have the resources to ever let anybody really know or convince them to believe that that was my song. Help quell my concerns. Oh about no, this. no.
2: So, 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 Okay. So you're conflating two things. You think that you think they're going to claim that they came up with the song. Ah. Help. Yeah. yeah so th- th- this will help. I think this will help. Can we're you? We're going get you into go the onto, fraud, it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's let's go into it a little bit more and explain why that that. Yeah. So you're happen. talking
2: about attribution, which has literally actually that's not protected by copyright right now. So that but that doesn't happen look bitcoin fixes this right because you can easily just publish your song on on youtube and then now you have a record that you came up with it this is really a non-problem the attribution problem is not a problem whatsoever it's the copying problem that people don't like they don't you don't want to be copied without your permission right but i'm i assume you do have you ever done covers of anyone else no you think it's wrong to do covers
0: no no um, but th- my problem would be the attribution problem that you
2: just dispelled, right? I think that's what really. But that's uh, not an IP issue, right? Attribution
1: that's a, is not an intellectual property issue. But now we're into a fraud problem, right? That, because that, that right. would be a fraud. If it's I steal, a fraud if, if problem, I steal, which, which
2: I'm in favor of fraud law.
1: Yeah, if I steal Andy's song and say, "Hey, let me tell you about. Let me play my great new song for you." I'm, I'm, maybe, maybe it's not exactly the elements of fraud, but I think. It's, yeah, see, that's a it's, tough it's, one too. It
2: could be fraudulent, uh, but, but, but by the way, it'd be defrauding your customers, not. Not, not Andy. He yeah. knows it's not his song. He's not being defrauded. Right, right, if, right. If he performs a concert and I don't know if he, if he sells a CD and promises to be the uh, the the creator, I've just never. I mean, whenever this happens in the, in the world, like Millie Vanilli or so, I don't know. They always get exposed. <laughs> I mean, you know, right now, like the Bible and Romeo and Juliet, all these old things or uh, Moby Dick, they're they're out of copyright. So there's nothing preventing you from copying moby dick right now and selling it under your name if you want to go ahead and do it on amazon right now everyone's going to think you're you're a ridiculous laughing stock and you're not going to sell any
1: but you can do it (laughs) so let's take the hardest question right um you know horrible new disease x comes up and is killing people all over the world and a drug company with expectation of making a profit right that's why Companies do things, and I don't think we have any dispute with that. They spend a lot of time and money, and they invest resources, and they do research and development and testing and focus groups and this and that and the next thing. And now uh, they're into it for millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they finally come up with the right formulation to say, hey, we got this pill now that will cure this horrible disease. And as soon as they put it out there, competitor takes the pill, and says, "Hey, you know, there's no intellectual property here. I we can figure out the um, the the chemistry here, and we can do." Wait, all-
2: wait, wait, wait! What what makes you think they can figure it out? What makes you think it's that easy? That part is not easy at all. That takes years.
1: Well, what if it was? And, and
2: furthermore, furthermore, one reason that the information is out there the day that the the first company starts selling is because the FDA process requires them to file and make all their stuff public. So, <laughs> by the time they get approval from the FDA. All their competitors are ready to go. Maybe maybe he picked the wrong
0: example, but I think I'd like you to address the point he's trying to make, which is, assuming that it was like just hypothetically if there was some technology that's developed that allowed you to kind of deconstruct and figure out the chemical makeup, I think maybe where you're going with this, Mark, is doesn't
2: that discourage
0: innovation? Yeah, exactly, doesn't that make people say, okay, well, but, I don't want to stick my neck out and spend the resources to create it if it's well, just going to get snatched up? Well, first
2: out. of all, the, the purpose of law is not to encourage innovation right, is to do justice to stop conflict.
1: Well, that's true. But, you know, law, if if you talk to David Friedman, he spends a lot of time on law and economics. And he'll I think he would make the point that what we want to do is have laws that are economically efficient and that get us to these sort of utilitarian ideas. Right. When when we smuggle in, we want to increase human happiness and decrease human suffering. That sounds very utilitarian and not so libertarian. Right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if 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 following the principle Led, led us to a place where you know the human race is going to die because of whatever reason then we'd have to change our philosophy right
2: i i would agree it's just you know if you if you're in favor of innovation which i am we need freedom and human and property rights and again a you know, thriving free market we don't need a state doing everything it can to choke us with a with a panoply of stupid agencies and regulations of which the patent system is one the idea that the patent system is necessary for innovation is is absurd. We've had an innovation throughout human history without a patent system, and the idea that it even encourages innovation. There is literally no evidence for this. All the empirical studies show that it either is, uh, slows down innovation or is, or is neutral or we just can't tell. There's just no evidence on the side of this argument that the patent system encourages innovation. For one thing, once you have a patent, you have a less – a reduced incentive to innovate because you have 17 years you can sit down, and your competitors – have less of a reason to go into that field because they can't sell a product similar to yours for 17 years so they don't innovate either so it slows down innovation and it also distorts innovation
1: but what um, about the company that's going to say look if we can not at least for a period of time sell this thing and make our money back and make a good healthy profit on it we're not going to spend the money trying to yeah. develop this aren't, aren't-
2: i think that's true but 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 that's always the true on the margin and, and so first of all these companies could make a pro- think about the covid crisis right now you have about 11 vaccines out there you aware of that so there's 11 of them okay and you know there's at least there's 3 in the us right and there's there's astrazeneca overseas there's a a bunch of vaccines were come up with at the same time which is proof which is evidence by the way that they shouldn't be patented because if 11 companies can come up with a similar solution to the same problem in almost the same time that shows that it was not that it was obvious how to do it that's how the ta- that's the patent system. so I think every patent they get is Ill- illegitimate under under standard patent law principles. but anyway, they have these patents which means they, they right now they can't charge a monopoly price on the on the drugs right now. Do you even know what the vaccine costs? No one knows right. <laughs> like, yeah. it's free as far as I can right tell. <laughs> right no they're not gouging people and in fact all these companies have said they're not asserting their patents right now so they're not using their patents they're not charging monopoly prices based on the patents. And yet they're not saying they can't recoup their pro- – and, and they're competing with 11 other companies for a similar vaccine. And they're still making a profit. So apparently it's possible to invest billion in a billion dollars in a pharmaceutical and then sell it and make a lot of money, even though you have competition.
1: Well, of course, What's the problem. Well, of course, it might be slightly different when you're in the midst of a pandemic and the demand is through the roof, right? I mean, the demand. Okay, is- But every
2: example people give, I could poke holes in it and they always say, OK, well, there's another they go and find another. example. I, I mean, I think ultimately the answer is a principle and it is this Um Let's suppose we have a patent system, which we do. Let's suppose it encourages innovation. Okay, it's got to come at the expense of something else, but let's say it does it. So we're, we're basically we're hurting someone in the economy for the benefit of, of, of. So the idea of David Friedman and these other guys is that um, in a free market you would have a certain amount of innovation, okay, but it's not optimal because of this free rider problem or because of the competition problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so if you have a patent, you increase innovation to this level. Okay. But that means that there's still other, other pharmaceuticals that would have taken another billion dollars of research that they didn't even invest in because they couldn't recoup those costs even with the patent system. right? There are some drugs that are not being developed as we speak because we don't have a super patent system. We only have a regular patent system, and so you have had people of the IP mentality, some of them so-called libertarians like Alex Tabarrok and these guys… And they proposed that you have a taxpayer-funded prize system to give people an extra incentive to, inv- to innovate more. I mean if you make innovation your key value in life that the government, the whole legal system should be distorted to, to achieve, then you're never going to have enough. And, and we can basically enslave the whole human race to get one more… Bit of innovation, but the goal of the law should be justice and protect property rights. And whatever amount of innovation happens out of that is what you're going to get. But I do believe that um, free market actors are very businessmen are very creative. They will find ways to make money. I mean, listen, I'm sure you've bought Tylenol sometime in your life. You know, it's it's more expensive than acetaminophen. You ever seen that? How can they do that? It's like four dollars versus two dollars. You go to the drugstore right now, you'll see. Uh, tylenol for four and acetaminophen for two, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's eight and four, but it's twice as much.
1: Why? Why do they charge more? People like the name Tylenol. <laughs> yeah, it's their brand. It's their yeah. reputation.
2: There's lots of things you would you can and, do, and there's lots of things people would do that they don't have to do now because they can, they can rest behind the protection given to them by the patent system. They would be forced to be more creative and to do what you would do normally on a free market, and they would find ways. And the same is true of musicians and – I mean look. The reason you guys don't you can't make a lot of money selling CDs anymore is because you have streaming and you have the internet. It's not because of it's, it's not because you don't have IP. There is copyright still, right? It's that that golden period where you could make $50 million selling CDs from 1984 to, you know, 19 2003 was a brief period in history. You know, now it's streaming and you get little royalties from the streaming. So people have resorted to going from performing live and doing concerts and doing gigs and doing other things. Oh yeah, right? we
0: make the vast majority. to adapt to the market. We make the vast majority of our proceeds from merchandise, from actually going there and yeah. selling something that people can't just take on the internet, right? We have uh, our last three albums have all been uh, turned into BitTorrent files and are being downloaded uh, all over the yeah. world, which is flattering. I like that, but it's just not
2: how you make money as a is an even small time, but, edition. but that's not the fault of, so you, we have copyright now and it's still happening. The reason that's happening is because we now have, uh, we have digital information and we have networking. So we have the internet, which is the world's greatest copying machine. And it will, ne- Corey doctor said this about 10 years ago. It will never get harder to copy things going forward. It's only going to get easier. Mm-hmm. So copyright is unenforceable now because copying is easy. Which which shows you that it's unnatural. I mean, if 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 you cannot, it's like the drug war. You know, it's trying to stop something. It's an it's an unwinnable war. If you try to say you can't copy things, but we're we're copying machines, we're learning creatures. We speak, we learn, we read books, and now we have digital technology that allows us to copy even better. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Oh, oh go ahead, Mark. and,
1: and Stefan, I have for some reason rattling around in my head is the idea that there have been actually several companies. Who have innovated and put products out on the market? Who have not availed themselves of intellectual property? And for some reason, Mercedes is one of these companies that I have rattling around in my head. Do you know anything about that?
2: I'd be surprised if that's true of Mercedes, but I know that Tesla announced that they were they were not going to assert their um, their battery and their their electric car patents because they partly they wanted they wanted um, they want the industry to mature and grow so that their. Uh, a medium fish in a huge pond rather than a big fish in a tiny pond, you know? And I think like Twitter Twitter uh, announced early on that they refused to enforce patents. And the way they did it, they did it creatively. Instead of just making an announcement, which you can kind of take back, I mean, maybe maybe a defendant could use an estoppel argument, but it's not really a contract, really. So what they did was they 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 have a policy where every employment agreement gives the inventors, the employee inventors of Twitter, um, like a, a license right of any patents that the company gets based upon their inventions, so that the company has to get their permission to to assert the patent aggressively. So it's a way of tying their own hands. It's very clever. Mm. So you have a few companies that that like intentionally eschew the use of IP or minimize it as much as possible, in part because they want to stay more nimble. They don't want to be stuck behind some patent that they can rely on, even though they, they need to change direction.
0: Stefan, we're almost out of time here. Uh, I had one quick more question for you, just because we don't. I don't think we talk about this enough generally, and it's an impl- implementation question. If you were the uh, king tomorrow, and you could—I uh, know you're kind of inherently going to cringe at that uh, title—but if you uh, idealistically had your way tomorrow and could tweak the lo- the law and everything like that, um, would you? Is there some pragmatic reason why we should wean ourselves in this country off of patents, or would you just rip the band-aid off and just abolish? So
2: there are some, um, you know, there are, of course some. It's like the drug war. I assume you would agree with me the drug war should be ended immediately right yes. rip the bandaid um, off immediately. you don't wean yourself off of that right um and but like social security is difficult right yeah. I admit that those are difficult. I would be
1: against ripping the Band-Aid off on that one because I think it's going to have injustice on both sides. And we got to find creative solutions. We want to get off it as quickly as possible. But we're in a mess and we got to consider lots of different. I'd be ripping
2: it, but I don't know if it would go out well. And I don't think it's an easy thing. But patents and copyright, I would immediately abolish. There is literally nothing whatsoever good about these things. Uh, And there's no there would be no injustice uh, committed.  … by getting rid of them, no injustice. There would only be justice done actually. I mean you'd have tons of things free. Orphan works would be freed. Uh, You'd have a flourishing of the arts, and people would be mixing and doing what they want to do without permission. Innovation would increase. Um, I think there'd be literally no bad bad consequences from uh, getting rid of the patent system. The only possible argument you could make is that you should tie…  … The elimination of patents in the pharmaceutical industry to a re- to a reform of the FDA system. Um, just yes. like some people say, you can we can only open our borders once we get rid of welfare or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a good argument. And if you if you read chapter nine in uh, McKelly Boldrin and David Levine's book Against Intellectual Monopoly, which is a an empirical focus on the pharmaceutical industry, I think you'll see why. Um, Um, Abolition of the patent system should be done independently of getting rid of the FDA, but they should both be eliminated, but I don't think you should tie it to anything. I think you can get rid of them both instantly. The problem is we have all these international treaties, which we have signed on to, which conveniently tie our hands and make it a breach of international law like the Berne Convention, the Paris Convention, the Patent Cooperation Treaty, TRIPS. (laughs) So if we were to… Reduce our patent term back to the way it was when the country was founded, which is about 14 years times two, 14 years renewable once. Right now it's the life of the author plus 70 freaking years. So it's well over 100 years. If we were to reduce it, we would be in breach of international law. Wow. So, um, so
0: it, It's a pretty deeply ingrained problem here. Funny that you mentioned
1: it's- immigration and doing away with the social programs first. Our last episode that we recorded was with Doug Casey, and he said exactly that in that episode. But anyways, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about something else, something I didn't – I don't understand. And maybe you can help explain it to me because I noticed you, uh, you mentioned that you left the conference in Turkey – Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's conference and that you're also involved with the Mises Institute and I know there's been a some some split of some type between uh, one side of the movement which you might call the Hoppe side and the Mises Institute and Lou Rockwell and that crowd and then the other side of the movement Cato Institute and I guess other groups and uh, yeah what's the nature of this split which side are you on and why Oh
2: well, I guess I'm on the Mises, Hoppe, Rothbard side, but it's only because I am a principled libertarian. And um, look, I admire the good thing other groups
1: do. What's um, the split? What's the nature of the split? What's the disagreement here?
2: I think it was I think it was personality in the beginning. I think I think Rothbard helped co-found Cato and wanted to be the top dog there because he was the top intellectual dog there. But then the billionaire had a different idea and wanted. Wanted to move it to D.C. and start affecting legislative policy more, and Rothbard was afraid of that rightfully I believe because it makes you sort of – I will say sell out, but it does make you compromise or, or – or, look, incrementalism is not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, if you're advocating for things that are not even an improvement like the voucher system, in my opinion, is not even libertarian. Um, it, it would be a move backwards um, – in most ways, um, so I think it was a personality thing. But then it was, I think it was in a way more comp- competition between two rival groups. You know, they're both trying to be the one, the main one. Uh, but at this point, it's 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 devolved. It, I guess you could say that um, the other side is more utilitarian and min- minarchist rather than radical, and they're not quite as Austrian. And our side is more uh, um, anarchist and radical and Austrian, and less concerned with being respectable. And because we don't think we ever will be res- accepted by the, the the people in D.C., um, the the unfortunate thing is, a lot of times you'll have unfair criticisms being made, like of our side, like oh, racist, Nazi, all this stuff. It's just it's just ridiculous. I don't even bother to talk to those people anymore. I just say you're an asshole. <laughs> I'm not going to I don't need you in my life and I'm not going to I'm not going to justify. Sometimes
0: it. that's the best uh, response. You know, what
1: a shame that is such a small freedom crowd that now there is a rift and there are different groups and it seems to be much much to do about nothing. And this is why I think it's the right time for live and let live something that is really uh, packaged in a way that can be communicated without all of the fluff and stuff that is unnecessary to getting the simple message about the principle Across, but anyway, I want to thank you so much. Wait, okay. let, let me let me let me tell you one story real quick okay. that you
2: just thought me about. about two three years ago. I was invited by a guy at Cato to go to D.C. and to appear on a panel debate about IP in ultra property uh, on the on the on the anti side against two two other guys that were pro IP. And I accepted, and I bought my airfare. and everything. I was going to go because I don't. I'm an independent outside scholar. I don't really go for all these things. I just do what I do, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll side with anyone who was a favor for liberty. And I was surprised that Cato would invite me because they. I've been affiliated with the Mises group, you know, um, but. And then about a month before the event, I got. A, I was. I was. Uh, what's the right? I was canceled. <laughs> I think what happened was someone at Cato found out what the guy that invited me had done, and they told him, you can't invite him, and so he had to disinvite me. He was apologetic, but he had to disinvite me. Shameful. So, like, I was willing to go, but they disinvited me. Terrible. Yeah, it's
0: it's too bad that there's infighting in such a small community. I mean, we really need to unify under one flag. If we're going to change hearts and minds, I mean, I couldn't imagine, if I was on the left or right and I didn't know anything about the freedom movement, uh, I couldn't uh, imagine a bigger turnoff than when I finally warm up to listening to some of the ideas... Half of the folks involved with the freedom movement are mad at the other half and say, no, no, that's not how it really goes. That's not, they got it all wrong, blah, blah, blah. If it's not unified, if it's not a unified message, it's going to be harder to sell.
1: Well, this is you, part you, of the reason in such a great message hasn't yet been successful. We've screwed it up, and we need to straighten it out going forward.
2: I, I I noticed that Europeans are often mystified by because they kind of admire the American liberty movement from afar, but they 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 sort of like why does one group not like the other? They yeah they're they're always confused by it, and rightfully so. Yeah.
0: Stephan, it's been an awesome conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Totally. We've been talking to Stefan Kinsella. He's a patent attorney in Houston, libertarian author, and a longtime freedom activist, having some great conversations about intellectual property and why it should be abolished. How about that?
1: Yeah, great conversation. Yeah, loved
0: it. Very, very interesting. Everybody should go to liveandletlive.org for this conversation and many more. See what we're up to in the movement. Start a chapter in your area today. See all the great events that we have coming up. Be part of the solution, not the problem. Don't sit idly. Get involved and let's change the world for the better. Until next time, my friends, this is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We're the Peace Radicals. Peace! Peace.